Good morning and welcome. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy? I want to read uh, two verses that are found there. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And now that you've gotten settled, would you mind standing with me as we start all over again? I'm sorry we do that because, you know, we changed our liturgy uh, because of the protocols. Anyway, so uh, now as I made you do this, I feel really stupid. (laughs) Sorry about that. Anyway, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1 in 2 Timothy. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we have gathered today around the authority, the truth of your word, that you would bring our hearts into a, a submission to it, Lord. That, Lord, we know that everyone probably in this room would confess that they know you. I'm not sure we always understand you, that your ways sometimes are foreign to us. And we ask God that you would open our understanding. You would help us to walk into a deeper intimacy with you. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1932, as the Great Depression began its stranglehold on the world economy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the newly elected president of the United States in his inaugural speech as the 32nd president of this country, made a statement uh, that was literally remembered. I could say most of the speech was not remembered except for the one phrase that has resonated with amongst us even unto this day. He said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I think that everyone that heard those words at that time and even now can immediately identify with them because fear is probably the most pervasive human emotion which we all experience, we all share in it, even though we may not want to admit it. We can wear the t-shirt that says, no fear, but it doesn't change the reality that oftentimes we are driven by fear. And it's only, I think, when we begin to actually sit back and think about it, we begin to realize how much of our actions and reactions, our responses are based upon a fear response to something that's going on around us. Now, the Bible doesn't condemn people for being afraid. In fact, it speaks frequently about it, both in its negative and its positive terms. I mean, we're repeatedly advised not to allow our thoughts, our words, our actions to be controlled or to be directed by fear. For example, uh, the Lord spoke to Joshua when they were on the eve of entering the land of Canaan. He said, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That was a timely word for him that often we quote statements like that without any reference to a context, but you have to understand he was in the midst or the very beginning of going against a much greater formidable force than he was prepared to conquer. And yet God's word to him is, I know it doesn't look good, Joshua. I know the the terms don't look well. It doesn't look like you have a good chance, but don't worry Because everywhere you go, I will go with you. And that becomes really the operative term. Not so much not being afraid, but not being so afraid that you'll no longer go. And that's really what happens is many people don't go to where God wants them to go, whether it be emotionally, mentally, or physically, simply because they're afraid to go there. I often think that the things I will grieve over, if there's any such thing as grief in heaven... It's not the greatest theology, I guess. But if I think there's any regret that's allowed in heaven, it'll be the one over things that I knew I should have done, but I didn't do because I was afraid of the cost. Matthew, in the 20th chapter, three times has the angels saying to the terrified disciples, do not be afraid. John 14, 7, Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. 
You see, instead of that, we're counseled, as we read here, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. He's speaking about the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's an interesting way of describing it. It's like a flame that's in you that can either flicker and become dim on the verge of being extinguished or it can be fanned into flame where it really expresses itself profoundly that none can miss it and its intensity cannot be helped but be felt. But he says, fan into flame. He says, for God did not give you a spirit of timidity. It's an interesting word in the original, timidity. It means to cower in terror. A cowering fearfulness that's afraid to show its face or its head or to speak up. Because he says, instead, we've been given a spirit of power. The word literally means active, vigorous, positive. It's a word dunamis. It means where we get our word dynamic and dynamite. He says, God has given us this dynamism in our life. The moment he came to live inside of our hearts. And he says, he's given us a spirit of love, which means we show that we care, that there's a concern there, not just for our own selves, but for others around us. And it's a spirit of self-discipline. Some translate it as sobriety or modesty, but it means a, a sensibleness, an awareness of what's going on. And, and yet, at the same time, there's a moderation, there's a self-control, there's a, a confidence that doesn't need to be reactive because it knows what's going on and it knows where it's going. It's really quite the opposite of being terrorized. You see, fear is natural and and we shouldn't ignore it because it's really God's alarm system that he placed inside of us. I mean, there are some things that you should be afraid of. I think about how Hosea spoke about the judgment that was coming on Judah and he says, like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. His point in that alliteration is simply saying, you know what, there's some things that should scare you to death. And if they don't, you're really making a mistake. In fact, in Proverbs 22, three, he says, a prudent man sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. So there are just some things that we know. I mean, we know living in this part of the country, even though we seem to forget it with great regularity at each new snowfall, that when there's snow on the ground, the temperature dropped, we probably should kind of back off in the accelerator a little bit. But every year with the first snow, how many is 100, 200 accidents? Because we forget it's been entirely eight or nine months since the last time we had to do this. The reality, it's it's not sensible to ignore danger signs. Nor is it insensible to recognize that something is dangerous and want to readjust ourselves and position ourselves accordingly. And we're also told to show fear or respect, not only for God as supreme, but also to show fear and respect to those who hold positions of earthly authority. Which is one of those dynamics that seems to be pretty much lost. I often think, I always think about historically and sociologically, I really think that something changed in the American psyche after the Richard Nixon Watergate affair that there was so much anger and outrage that suddenly it became permissible to show people in positions of authority disrespect. And the problem with that is it's a double-edged sword. You may swipe one way to get back at someone you feel has offended you, whether real or imagined, but that sword will come back and it'll swipe you as well. You see, there was a genius when David said, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed because he knew he was the next Lord's anointed. (laughs) He said, I don't wanna set the precedent of assassination of my enemies because one day my enemies will feel quite emboldened to assassinate me as well. If we don't respect his kingship, his anointing, then we end up setting ourselves up when we come to that place of authority. You can see it in the home when moms or dads speak disparagingly of their spouses in front of their children and then they're surprised why their children disrespect them but they've created the precedent you've created the example that they're following after but most of all and I think we all understand this 
is that we're told to fear God. Psalm 111 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, reverencing God is really the most sensible and profitable and beneficial thing that when God speaks of our proper protocol, which means the right way of doing things, that's what protocol means. When we think about how do we do life in the proper protocol, it really begins with this idea that I centrally and fundamentally and basically and essentially recognize that the right view of God is the most important thing I can do in my life. And if we misappropriate that or misperceive that, we can act in ways that really are harmful to us and to others around us. They may not be harmful to God. In fact, I should say that I seem to be struggling with right theology this morning, but the reality is God is not threatened or bothered or upset. He doesn't lose sleep because he doesn't need sleep, but he also isn't troubled. That when I throw my tizzy fit and get angry at God, which sometimes I do, he doesn't say, oh my gosh, Ken doesn't seem to like me right now. <laughs> now, I do those kind of things. You do those kind of things. But, but God never pulls back and goes, gee whiz, is there something I can do to make him happy? And I'm always saying, yes, Maserati, Maserati. <laughs> any, little, any, you know, any highly expensive European sports car will do. I'll take even an American one. But anyway, I'm so humble that way. But one of the things we learn rather quickly from Scripture is that fear is not the problem. It's where it takes us. Fear creates, as we know, a fight or flight mechanism. And our first response is almost always to flee, to get as far as we can. But when we feel that we're cornered, then we fight. You see, if fear sends me to God, then the scripture says I'm a wise man. Job wrote in Job 28, 28, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Do you realize the fear of the Lord as being wisdom is restated 125 times in the scripture? I think it's one of those things we need to pay much more attention to because one of the things that Paul said in Romans 1 that would be really characteristic of the sinfulness of mankind, he says, because they have no fear of God before their eyes. They feel like they can act as they please and there's no consequence. So in a sense, they determine that God himself is inconsequential. When in fact, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God is the primary consequence. But the fear of God is not terror, unless of course you're on the wrong side of that equation, but rather it's an awareness of the awesomeness, the power of God, and the very real understanding that if I find myself in the wrong position, in that disrespectful, disregarding, cavalier, casual view of God as my CB buddy, then what happens is that I don't fear God. I don't, I don't concern myself with what comes, flows through my mind, what I, what I see with my eyes, what I hear with my ears what I do with my hands or where my feet take me. I don't concern myself with those things because it's my life after all to live the way that I want to live it, right? And yet God says, my eyes are continually on you. That you never move to the right or the left. <laughs> you don't, whether you're asleep or you're awake, I'm on you like whites on rice. That's why the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 10, the fear, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A terrible and a frightful thing. Now, I've served in ministries where we used to say that about our senior pastor. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of, well, I won't mention names, but. And that's why in Romans 13, 4, when he talks about our relationship with human authorities, he said, if you do wrong, be afraid. Rulers are God's agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. 
Yet for those of us who are his children, his fear does not elicit terror, but rather it creates reverence, it creates worship, and it creates an amazing sense of comfort and peace. It's expressed in what Isaiah told Israel on the eve of the Assyrian destruction. He says, fear not for I have redeemed you. You are mine. And so when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze for I am the Lord your God. Yet there's another kind of fear we should be frightened by, and that's the fear of man. Especially if that fear has a greater control over our lives and our choices than the fear of God. Solomon warmed again in Proverbs 29, he says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. Literally, it means a bait trap. But whoever trusts the Lord will be safe. Jesus himself said in Luke 12, he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Whom should you fear? Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. By the way, you may want to remember that one because Jesus said it. You see, the fear of man is one of Satan's most effective tools. He, he actually weaponizes it against us. Because when fear comes on, we, we quickly forget that Christ died and rose again, as the writer of Hebrews put it, to free those who all their lives are held in slavery by the fear of their death. Psychologists have come to conclude that behind all of the fears and anxiety that people have, there is an underlying essence. In fact, what, what motivates most people to try to accomplish things and to be noble is actually this issue of fear of death. I remember years ago, I had a man in a, in a Bible study group I was in who worked for a company who created research videos or educational videos for various professions. And he said, we were asked to do one for doctors to help them with their bedside manner because they didn't seem to deal with dying patients real well. And so he said, what was surprising to us is we found that the, one of the primary motivators for people going into the field of medicine is the fear of their own mortality. And when they can't rescue a patient, they emotionally shut down and withdraw so that they don't have to address their own fear of death. We had a friend who passed last night, or Friday night, and it was so kind of glorious. CJ was talking about his mom passing last night, and as she's sitting in the chair, all of a sudden lifting her hands up into heaven, looking up, and boom, she's gone. Now that's how I want to go. <laughs> Where is thy sting, death? It's removed by the resurrection of Christ. But what Satan seeks to do is to instill in us that spirit of cowardice so that we start running scared and we start living in a, in a continuing, increasing state of fear. One of the terrible things is that people give place to fear and its control over their life. It actually escalates rather than becomes less. The more we're afraid of, the more we become afraid of more things. You see, Satan has used the fear of man to deceive, to subvert, to control mankind from the earliest moments of history. In fact, in Genesis 11, we're told that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. This is always a fascinating and great challenge to Bible translators because how do you take terms that have all sorts of secondary and third level meanings, how do you bring them into another language in a way that actually captures the thought? And this whole phrase of being a mighty hunter before the Lord, well, we live in the Northwest. We realize this guy was out tracking grizzlies fighting off wild animals to protect his, his family and his friends and his flocks. Well, actually, it doesn't mean that at all. 
This was not meant as a camp compliment. It was basically an impl implication of defiance. That Nimrod arrogantly defied God's right. His prey was not animals. His prey was other humans. He was a conquering warrior. Nimrod was the first of that ancient mythical class of heroes who essentially, when you look at what they actually did, they brought death and chaos and destruction. They ravaged other people in order they might plunder them or enslave them. And he's that prototype of the final world leader that the Bible describes will come and establish the last world government. A man who defies God and who, in the process, ends up destroying mankind. In Revelations 13, he's called the beast. And the reason he's given that name is because he is beastly in his character. It's the savageness, the rapaciousness of his personality and his actions that terrifies those who try to confront him. He says the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. To blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. The revelator goes on to say, before me was a white horse and its rider rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Most commentators believe that's the description of the rise of the Antichrist on the world scene. A conqueror bent on conquest. People will ask, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? And then he says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and the word of God. This kind of leader finds his power and his ability to reign with terror to bring the terrified into compliance. And history is replete with examples of the Genghis Khans and the Attila the Hun and Vlad the Impaler and on and on it goes. But it's ironic that in the 20th century we find that history's most and worst genocidal most successful psychopathic murderers were able to express themselves in all of their cruelty. One probably is totally unknown to you, King Leopold II of Belgium, who murdered over 10 million people in Africa in his conquest to build an African empire. 10 million people perished. When the Black Lives Matter movement spread over to Europe and the Belgians went and pulled his statue down, I applauded that one. It would be like putting up a statue of Adolf Hitler in Germany. Something that the Belgians just didn't want to face up to. That that was the foundation upon their wealth. It was the blood of 10 million Africans. Of course, Adolf Hitler topped that with, we know at least 20 million people that perished as a result of him. And then Joseph Stalin came along, who seems to get a pass many times, but we account about 50 million people who perished under his leadership. 16 million in the Ukrainian loan. And then there is the Mao Zedong, the founder of the People's Republic of China. It's believed that at least 60 million people died under his leadership. You put it all together and you come up with 140 million victims within a span of less than 100 years. Yet when the Antichrist, the beast as he's called, comes onto the world scene, he will outdo them all combined. In fact, Revelation 6, 8 says, he has given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by wild beasts of the earth. If that were today, we're talking about 1.75 billion people. Now, I'm not saying it'll get covered by the media. But it may be hard to miss. The question we might ask, at least I ask, so you have to hear my answer. Why do these antichrist personalities wreak such havoc, destruction, and death? 
Historian and political philosopher Hannah Arendt in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, which is believed by many to kind of be the, the seminal definitive work on the issue of despots, tyrants. She simply said, terror is used as an instrument to rule masses of people who become perfectly obedient. David Crane, an international jurist, had been involved in many cases against uh, 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 genocidal cases in his career. He says, I have investigated and prosecuted dictators and their henchmen for most of my professional life. I've studied their lives, their personalities, their rise to power and how they governed. And the one common theme in their theories of governance is fear. It is easier to govern and dictate to citizens through fear than through doing good. And then he says, the infamous dictators of the 20th century understood this all too well. A frightened populace will allow their government to take drastic measures to protect them from a perceived evil without protest. As Hermann Goering, when he was being interviewed by William Gilbert, who was an American psychiatrist at the Nuremberg trials, simply put it that with fear, they were asked the question, how did you take control of Germany? How did you get people to not rise up against you? And he said, simple, fear. That's all it took. The Gestapo would show up in an apartment building and they would just find somebody standing there, arrest them, take them off, and they'd be gone off to the concentration camp. And everybody was so terrified that they would be next that nobody said anything. They pretended like it never happened. They just went on, even in the Soviet Union. People would hear the trucks pull up in front of their apartment building. They'd hear the boots running up the stairs, a pounding on the door, loud voices screaming. Somebody pulled out, taken away, thrown in the truck. The trucks disappear. And the next morning, the family that's left behind acted as if nothing had happened. But if they ever saw their family member again, it might be five to 15 years after they've paid their penalty for some crime that they may not even have known of. But the very act of that sudden attack and carrying away and disappearance created such a sense of fear in people that they became paralyzed. And they made a point of never lifting their head up lest they get shot off. It bred a culture of incredible mediocrity amongst the people that are extremely intelligent and extremely talented and extremely gifted, and yet nobody would seek to excel because if you did, that put your head above everyone else and somebody would report you out of jealousy and the KGB wouldn't wait to find proof or evidence. They would just arrest you and take you away and you disappear. But you and I would sit back and say, well, certainly nothing like that could happen here. But if you think about it, over the ta past decade, under the fear and in many ways very real threat of terrorism, I think 9-11, unless you're a denier, but 9-11 really kind of proved that terrorism is something we should be afraid of. It's something we should take precautions and protections against. But what has happened is it's led to the ever-increasing intrusion of, of the government, especially through surveillance and tracking systems, through data harvesting, and that government and tech companies and corporations have almost completely eliminated privacy. Personal privacy is all but gone. If you don't think that's true, next time you're doing a Google search, you'll notice for weeks afterwards, you'll be getting ads for that item that you looked at. And it's had a singular effect upon me. I regret I was even interested. <laughs> but you realize that Amazon has said, has boasted, 
that our algorithms are so advanced and, and, and so effective that the day will come when you'll receive a package on your porch that you didn't order, but when you open it, you realize it's what you've always wanted. I'm serious. I'm serious. This was actually a boast. Jeff Bezos said that. It'll come to you and you'll just go, you know, I've been thinking about getting that. <laughs> the downside is it's not free. But other than that, But we all know that today, I mean, it's not just, I think Edward Snowden, whether you like him or not, one of the things he brought to the surface was the fact that the NSA was gathering huge amounts of data about everybody with no real way of processing it, but they just wanted to have it for the day in which they would have the capacity to process it. And we might, we might be advised to ask the question, to what end? Our data is harvested it's processed so aggressively that most of us have no idea how little is secret about us anymore. But if we just look at the last year, I mean, over the last year, we've been frightened into giving up our freedom of movement, our freedom of assembly, our freedom of worship, and in many ways, even our freedom of expression. And we become so dependent upon social media and, and digital merchants that we live in fear of being somehow put off into a digital gulag that will be flagged or banned or sub suspended, will be silenced or isolated until we repent for stating our own opinion. Daily we're shamed by the legacy media because we eat at Olive Garden. Thank goodness Anderson Cooper didn't mention Applebee's. I'd be in serious trouble. And God forbid that you ever eat at Golden Corral. You know, that, there's nothing that says that you're one of the unwashed Walmart deplorables than eating at Golden Corral. I'm just saying that. For those of you who are confused on these issues... And yet our elected officials have promoted unending draconian lockdowns. Lockdowns, and in fact, the Center for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Lancet, and ten thousands of thousands of leading scientists and medical doctors have said have only short-term benefits and should never be long-term and applied only in the most extreme circumstances because they do more harm than they do good. As my wife visited one of her medical treatments last week, uh, we look in this strip mall that used to be filled with shops. And this doctor's sh shingle is the only one that's there. Everybody else is out of business, except for Starbucks. And we've been subjected to an almost incessant barrage of what is nothing more than disorienting rhetoric. That somehow that racism is systemic. That we all are, who are white have, are guilty of white privilege and that transgenders make sense. And that somehow, even though God says he created them male and female, we have the ability to identify as anything we want. Poor Rachel Dazzo. She tried to identify as an African-American woman and she was vilified. When my grandkids are visiting. They want me to self-identify as a horse. <laughs> I try my best, but I'm getting too old for this, you know. I just, I, you know, I'm, I'm courageous. I just say, you know, your dad makes a much better horse than I do. <laughs> but this all has an effect upon us. And I think that's really what I want to begin to get us to, to look at because many people I talk to have this kind of non-distinct 
unidentifiable stress and pressure and people dealing with depression and discouragement and just a dark negative feeling that goes far beyond the fact that we only have three minutes of daylight every day. You know? <laughs> the Cato Institute did a survey and they found that 62% of Americans, 62% of Americans are afraid to express their own opinion. That conformity is a demand and any transgression against going along with a party line can get you canceled or even fired from your job. And now, after this weekend's nonsense in Washington, D.C., many of you are being afraid of being outed as a Trump supporter. You don't want to be branded, as the media has said, that you're a traitor, you're an insurrectionist, you're seditionist, you're treasonous. When I was listening to the uh, usual suspects on CNN going through this kind of litany of accusations, I... I thought, I came to my mind the movie Princess Bride. <laughs> when Vincini keeps on saying, inconceivable, inconceivable, and Fezzik says, you keep on saying that word. I don't think you know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the problem when things like that are thrown out against people that you don't like. You have to understand that it alters your, it lowers your sense of value of that person. It means that you can dispatch anything they say, that you don't have to listen to their point of view. You don't have to try to figure out, so where are you coming from with this? We can just say, you're one of those. And friends, that goes both ways. But there are some ideas out there that are just sucking the oxygen right out of the room. I mean, when Robert Reich, who is the former Secretary of Treasury under Bill Clinton, uh, economic advisor to Barack Obama, who gave us the gift of NAFTA and the housing bubble, he said from his ivory tower, we need a truth and reconcili reconciliation commission. Well, that sounds non-threatening, to name every official, politician, executive, and media mogul whose cowardice enabled this catastrophe. Now, if this was, you know, it was me spouting this off on the internet, you could dispatch me as being a lunatic, as I'm often told I am. But when it comes to someone who has been a cabinet member of the United States and is a close personal friend of the past three Democratic presidents? Or former Twitter CEO, CEO <laughs> that's ironic Twitter, uh, Dick Costello said, the me first capitalists are going to be lined up against the wall and shot in the revolution and I'll be happily provide video commentary. <laughs> Who says stuff like that? And of course, ESPN's Keith Olbermann I, I honestly, I don't know if it's fair to quote him because I really do question his mental stability. Seriously, I mean, I really do. I think the guy's got some serious problems. But he said, Trump must be destroyed. His enablers, his supporters, and his collaborators must be prosecuted and convicted and removed from our society. The fight does not end on November 3rd. In many ways, it only begins that day. But probably my favorite was, uh, well... One of my favorites, uh, ABC political director, Rick Klein. This is ABC's political director. He's a guy that they look to create their political presentations. He says that the country after Trump needs a cleansing of Trump supporters. We need, you know, if you're a Trump supporter, you need to be cleansed from our country. Sounds like ethnic cleansing. Almost a genocidal language. Which I, I don't think he means that. But it's that that uncareful way of saying things that's very d disturbing.
Jennifer Rubin, who is one of the editorials for the Washington Post, I, I think she summed it up really well. She says, the soon-to-be alumni of the Trump administration who were warned that association with Trump would mar their careers, corrode their character, are now hoping the Trump presidency isn't a disqualifying blemish on their resumes or Google footprint as the door revolves the other way and they seek to land once again in the private sector. They should think more about atoning for the betrayal of their country there are practical reasons for employers to reject not only those who were the face of the administration, but also those who labored behind the scenes. We as a country and as individuals need to decide whether those who are unremorseful and seek no forgiveness and who admit no complicity deserve to be welcomed back into polite society. Responsibility to come clean and make amends. Doesn't that sound like the nascent beginnings of a religious movement? That you can only be part of the morally superior class if you repent of having been a Trump voter? What's more frightening is what our newly nearly elected president sees as the answer to our problems. He says America he said this on the campaign trail, needs systemic change. Now, words mean something. If you look up the word systemic, it means that it needs to be completely redone. In fact, he reiterates, the pandemic is an opportunity to fundamentally transform America by revolutionary institutional changes. Well, you know, people don't pay attention to words. And he never gets asked a serious question. I know what kind of malt he likes, but I don't know what he means by those terms. And I don't expect next four years that there will be a serious interview that will ask him to define it. Maybe because he can't. But the promise to be the most progressive president in the history of the United States holds in it a whole, again, these, these are loaded terms. <laughs> now, I don't want to take your time by going into copious details about this stuff. If you want to know what I think about a lot of these things in detail, if you want me to, to be quoting for you chapter and verse, I would encourage you to just look at, look at my uh, election reflections or what the world's coming to podcast, the, the most recent one that's just been posted, I think, last night. Because I don't say these things cavalierly or without being able to validate it. But also what I don't want to do is leave you in a state of fear without giving you some kind of guidance on how you can go forward with your life. You see, because I'm not just trying to raise your awareness of the dynamics that are going. What I'm really calling you to do is saying, you need to see the dangers that are coming and you need to prepare for them but not by buying another AR. Americans bought 22 million guns last year. Are we good? <laughs> that means about 350 million guns are out there. That should be enough for everybody, even the guys who are against us. <laughs> Make it a fair fight. My daughter was telling me, talking to her, one of her, one of her managers, and, and her, her manager said to us, oh, well, hey, I got an extra AR to, that we're going to sell. You want to buy it? Extra AR? <laughs> now, I know some of you are sitting there going, well, duh. <laughs> A lot of this is kind of new to me, man. I mean, you know, I've got an AK, but I've only put it together once, and I don't even know how to use it, but anyway. Uh-oh, I let that out. That, oh, <laughs> it's Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I guess my point, and really what I want to, want to get to is this whole idea, now that I've got your attention, is how do you and I stay focused on the right things? Well, I think, first of all, don't panic. 
Don't allow fear to drive you crazy or into hiding or into striking out or back or settling scores or adjusting the narrative by calling people names, belittling and mocking them. I think we had to follow Paul's advice to Timothy shortly before he was literally beheaded. He said, don't lose your head. I thought that was kind of funny. Paul writes, don't lose your head because I'm going to lose mine very quickly. But he said, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardships because they will come. Not because you don't like the current administration or the political bent of the culture, because we know that the end of the times, Paul said, are going to be perilous times. Regardless of what happens politically, there's, there's, a, there's a movement of the world towards a destination. And if you want to know where that destination is, read the book of Revelation. My old son said to me a while back, and it just really resonated with me when he said, he said, Dad, I don't feel like the churches are preparing our people to suffer. There's a spirit of triumphalism in American Christianity. This idea that we have to win. And yet, in the economy of God, sometimes the way we win is by losing. That God will restrain evil until that restraint is taken away. And then he says, the man of lawlessness will rise on the world scene. That's what the world's coming to. Now, I've got to admit my own selfishness. My 70, almost 71 years here, pretty quickly, uh, for those of you who want to know the date, I'll send you a list of gifts you can send to me. <laughs> I always like this thing. You could go down to, to, to uh, uh, Target and you could have a bridal list. You know, you could put on the computer all the things you wanted. Why can't we do that for me? I'm just saying. Oh. Oh, by the way, please don't do that. I'm just joking. <laughs> but he says, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. So the first thing is don't panic. The second thing is Whatever happens, regardless of the circumstance, your mission as a Christian doesn't change. When Paul said, in the end times, men will get worse and worse, my mission doesn't change. It doesn't mean that I should move out to Blue Creek and build a cabin at the top of the mountain string concertina wire all over the place and claymores. Have a gun turret and wait for you to try and steal my canned goods. <laughs> That's kind of... I only have one problem with that. How do we tell people about Jesus? I would say the internet, but I'd probably get canceled. <laughs> After this, I may get canceled. I don't know. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he said, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. But thirdly, I think we need to stop looking to men for the answers. The middle verse of the entire Bible says, Psalm 118, verse 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in uh, prince of princes. <laughs> and soon after in Psalm 146, he says, do not put your trust in politicians or television pundits. or in mortal men who cannot save. I think there's a little bit of idolatry going on in our culture. That we're looking for this individual who's going to fix everything that's wrong with everything. 
We seem to forget that it's God's world, that he is the owner of everything, including you and me and everything that's in it. And ultimately, it's his decision, not mine. Fourth and finally, do not misidentify who the enemy is. When Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 26, he says, I do not run like a man who's running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man who's beating the air. A man who runs aimlessly, a man who is beating the air <laughs> is a guy who's putting out a lot of energy and accomplishing absolutely nothing. Paul was committed to knowing what is the objective that I need to focus on taking. And I'm committing myself to taking that objective. And his objective was a pretty simple one, which I think is supposed to be ours as well. That we impact the world for Christ in the most effective way we can. That's why familiar passage to all of you, but I want us to still think about them for a moment. In Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, the words RK in the Greek, it, it refers to, uh, in this context, superterrestrial demonic powers. Our battle is against the demons of hell, against the demonic powers, against the dark forces, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That when we see wicked men behaving wickedly, we need to understand that they're merely the foot soldiers who are carrying out the will of Satan and his angels, his demons. And ultimately, as General Schwarzkopf said before he invaded Iraq, he says, first I'm going to cut the snake's head off. And essentially, we have to understand that evil is going to prevail in our world until the head is cut off. As I was listening on, on CNN to an interview of a, a young lady, a Black Lives Matter protester, and she made an interesting statement. She said, <clears throat> we are not going to stop protesting and rioting until the turmoil inside of our souls is settled. And I thought, good luck with that. <laughs> That's part of the human condition. Turmoil in our souls. And that turmoil is supposed to bring us to Christ and to prayer and to faith and following because it can't be solved in any other way. And I think that we can be guilty of that right now. We can have turmoil in our life, whether it's our marriage or our children or our jobs, our economic circumstances, relational breakdowns, <laughs> on and on it goes. And the solution for all of those things is not by settling the score or demanding that they repent to such a point as I'm satisfied that it's adequate. What we have happening in our culture is a tremendous amount of blame shifting. I'm unhappy and it's your fault. And again, it's happening, it's becoming epidemic within our culture. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul said in his second letter in chapter 9, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. 
That's a discipline I think is sadly lacking within Christianity today. We have thoughts and we run with them. We form opinions out of those and out of those opinions came actions. And sometimes when I hear people ventilating certain things, I'd just love to ask them a simple question. Hey, bro, have you prayed about that? Have you gone through scripture to see if that's God's heart, that's his nature? Because when I think one of the great diseases in Christianity, in our culture at least, is that there's a lot of people who know God, they just don't understand him. They don't know his ways. Then what happens is we end up reading scripture, but we read it through a lens of our own crafting so that we're making God's word conform to our, our issues. Instead of stepping back and saying, God, what are you trying to say to me? I'm learning and have, <laughs> and probably be learning the rest of my life that every time I find myself in anxiety or stress or fear, I need to step back and say, okay, God, why is this here and what do I need to learn from you? When I'm disappointed by circumstances in life, to step back and say, God, you could have made this go easily the other way, but you didn't. So what is it I'm supposed to take away from this? How can I be a follower of Jesus? Not somebody who is chirping back over my shoulder and saying, Jesus, would you hurry up and catch up with me? Because I, as I listen to some people, I think Jesus is asleep at the wheel. Bringing my thoughts into obedience to Christ is the hardest thing you'll ever try to do as a Christian. But if you don't do it, you're going to end up someplace you don't want to be. I guarantee it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we could hear these things in a way that would translate into life change, Lord. But sometimes, Father, we, we confess that we can be so troubled by the wrong on one side of the equation that we become completely blind to our own wrong, our own sinfulness. We live in an age where people are so captured by their own thought life that they are projecting all of their turmoil on the world around them and not realizing that they'll never come to solutions, that they'll perpetually be the victim and victims never change anything because they're always demanding that the world change around them and that's not gonna happen. Help us, Lord, to humble our hearts. Teach us what it means to truly pray earnestly and passionately to realize that in the end that the battle is the Lord's, that you are our stronghold, you are our fortress, you are our high place, that we would not trust in chariots or horses, but we would trust in the Lord our God. And that when we deal with things in this life that we do not like and they trouble us deeply, that rather than becoming bitter and malicious, we would pray, Lord, help me to respond in a way that heals those who want to be healed. I pray for this nation, Lord, that is literally ripping itself apart in vitriol. I pray you'd have mercy upon us. You'd humble us. And I pray most importantly that the church would be a healing bomb in our culture, not a dividing bomb. 
Please be gracious, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.